We are looking at a series in Ephesians. We are doing this right through till near Christmas. And you've heard before, but this is a letter likely to have been written by Paul. And it's written as what's called a circular letter to the people and churches of Ephesus. So we're going to dive straight into Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. If you've got a Bible, great. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kingdom to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, this is a gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why don't I quickly pray as we open up this passage and hopefully let God speak to us this morning. Yeah, Father, we come open-handed and ready to receive from you this morning. For those of us who are just struggling with life and feeling empty and perhaps even in despair, I pray that your word would bring hope and reassurance and strength. But for all of us, individually and as a church family, we pray that you would speak your truth and your goodness into our lives and into our church congregation. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So Paul is quite keen in this passage to recognize here and throughout Ephesians that there's a battle going on between the rule of the world, the rule of the kingdom of death and destruction and the ruler which of course is a kingdom of heaven ruled by Jesus and Paul knew this battle very much firsthand we see that elsewhere in the New Testament Paul was imprisoned several times he was escaping death he was without food without sleep he faced persecution and challenge after challenge it could be argued that nobody before or since has faced the same level of challenge and opposition that Paul had. He had it hard following Jesus. He knew the battle that was going on. And it's possible that when he wrote this letter, he is currently waist-high, imprisoned, chained to a soldier, scribing or telling this letter out so that someone can write it. It's very possible that he's right now waist-high water and chained to a soldier and scribing what's going on here. This is a battle that he's describing between following Jesus and following the ways of the world, the ways of the evil one. And you may feel in a battle yourself this morning. You may come here very much in the back of a pandemic realizing that life for you is difficult. For many, many of us, perhaps it's spoken or perhaps it's hidden, life can be really difficult. Even for me in the last few days, just so I've been preparing to speak on this battle that we're going to unpack, it's obvious that there's just oppression and a world that's ruled by an evil force that wants to challenge and oppose the good stuff of the kingdom. It's a battle. You don't need me to tell you that life can be hard. There can be pain, injustice, and struggle. You might feel right in the middle of a battle right now. 
And unfortunately, if you're a Christian, it's part of the journey. And frankly, if you're not a Christian, you will be facing battles and challenges and oppositions. And the other thing that's worth saying is it might not be because you're doing something wrong. It might actually be because you're doing something right that you're facing opposition and challenge. As Christians, we endure in this battle. We keep going and keep fighting for Jesus until we meet him for eternity where there's no more sin and suffering and pain. One of the things that we've done perhaps badly as churches throughout the times is we've almost preached as if we are civilians during peacetime and been lulled into a false sense of security, but actually we're soldiers during wartime. We are soldiers enlisted in battle. And Paul describes in this passage this battle between light and darkness. And he talks about the ruler of the air. And that phrase doesn't really do it justice in our language, in our terminology, because what's going on here is a term that basically describes foggy atmosphere, cloudy, dark, disruptive atmosphere. He's describing the, the spiritual temperature and saying this foggy ruler of the world is clouding things. It's creating darkness. It's creating this, this kind of negative worldview. I don't know if you can relate to that. I was in Amsterdam a few years ago. I used to take teams of people to go and do mission in Amsterdam, and we would spend a week kind of serving the people and helping out. And on one day, we would go and do a prayer walk around the red light district. Now, you can probably picture it, right? The kind of Christian groups, a few of them have their WWJD bands. A few of them have their sort of rucksacks on both shoulders. You know, the sort of group, you know, you've seen them, right? When you're out and about, where there's those groups where you see them and you think, they must be Christians. Like, there's no other reason that group would hang out if it wasn't for the fact they're Christians. But they were very obviously Christians. And we were there keen to share Jesus and keen to pray in the red light district. And we were walking along and you to see the prostitutes in the windows in the middle of the day. I'm sure they were thinking we ain't getting any business from these guys. But anyway, as we were walking around and we were just praying, you could tangibly feel the atmosphere, the spiritual oppression. You could tangibly feel the oppression that's going on. I know sometimes when I pray or walk around parts of Edinburgh, parts near where we live, you can tangibly feel the battle that's going on. It doesn't take me to tell you that there's real evil in the world. There's darkness at stake. And Paul unpacks that in a few ways here. He says that there's very much an evil force. And as I said, you don't need me to tell you that there's evil in our world. From our TV sets, we see child abuse. We see horrendous things on a daily occurrence. Perhaps it's when you think of evil, you think of a Nazi regime of the 20th century. You might think of a whole range of things in your daily lives in this city, in history, that relate to evil. Evil is very prevalent. We know that. i never forget hearing a talk by Brother Andrew. And Brother Andrew was in his 80s and would go to the hardest to reach places and would take Bibles, smuggle Bibles to share the incredible hope he had in Jesus. And he was desperate to go and share Jesus with the Al-Qaeda training camps. And he was adamant that he didn't want to just go to the low-level Al-Qaeda training camps. He wanted to go to the most severe one. So he got there and they said, look, it's just not safe for you. It's dangerous enough for you being here. But I don't advise you go any further. But he said, no, no, I really want to go and share the good news with the most severe and dangerous Al-Qaeda training camp. Eventually, somehow, through prayer, he got to them and prayed for them. And he said, but some of them come to know Jesus. Incredible. It's not been publicized because it's not the sort of thing that's going to make the news. But he said when he got there, it was so obvious the evil at this literal training camp to raise up murderers, to raise up killers. There was four-year-olds who would spend 12 hours a day reciting 
liturgies that were the length of the New Testament, just brainwashing them to make them killers and murderers. Paul is un- pointing out here that there's evil and brokenness in our world. But it's, re- it's worth recognizing from this passage that there's different ways he operates. There, of course, is evil, of course, is darkness, but we also see through this passage the cravings of the flesh. Different ways that the schemes of the enemy operate. We see time and time again, don't we, leaders and Christians falling because of sex, money, and power. The cravings of the flesh undermining our discipleship, undermining our church. Paul is saying this subtle stuff is often stuff that creeps into our church is no less dangerous. Where is sin creeping into our life and our church? Where is the devil at work for the cravings of the flesh? Now, of course, just to be obvious and to name it, sex, sleep, money, food aren't bad things. But gluttony, laziness, lust, greed are. He's challenging us to not be succumbed to the cravings of the flesh. And he also unpacks the ways of the world. He says there's ways of the world here that you need to be aware of. And he was speaking to a culture where there was about 50 different gods. And the key god was Artemis, who was the god of fertility. And the people that were following Jesus were struggling because they wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted a cocktail of religions, a cocktail of ideologies, a cocktail of worldviews. And they wanted to pick and choose which parts of religion they would take. And he was saying, no, no, the one true God, you have to follow him. Be aware of the ways of the world. Be aware of the other ideologies. Be aware of the other distractions. One of the tragedies of humans is that we are created by God to live in relationship with God and so easily can ignore God and live without him. Where are the secularist worldviews? Where are the alternative worldviews that are creeping into our church and our discipleship? Subtle, sometimes it's covert, sometimes it's out-and-out devil, but obviously we see very clearly that there's different ways that the schemes of the enemy work. And regardless of how it comes, it all roots back into the, the ministry and the activity of the devil. And this doesn't take individual responsibility away. This doesn't mean that it's not our responsibility, but it does mean that we have to be very aware of the different ways that the devil can get a foothold in our lives and our churches. And as I said, most of you wouldn't need a minute to tell me different ways that you're feeling burdened, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling oppressed by the evil that's going on in our world. The devil's a liar, a murderer, and the father of destruction. We have to be very aware of his schemes. I think when we look at this, we have to be aware of two extremes. One is that we glorify it, we get excited about it, and we almost entertain it. And I never forget, you might think I've been taking too many funny bags or something, but when I was back at school in my primary years, I was in an assembly, and we had an opportunity to be in parts of the assembly that was two halves, and the rubbish actors like me just were kind of pushed into one part in the second half, but everyone else was perhaps involved in both halves. But because we weren't involved in the first half of the performance, we were there in the classroom just killing time. And some of the children decided to set up a Ouija board. And it was just man-made, it was just with a pen and paper. Coincidence, you decide, but afterwards the assembly fell on its head, the electrics went, the sound went, the whole thing went into hysterics and chaos. And I never forget that because it just reminded me that when we play with fire, we're destined for pain and destruction. One extreme is we glorify this, we engage with it. The other extreme, which is perhaps equally dangerous, is we ignore it and don't actually think there's a real battle going on. We don't think we need to be on guard in this battle. 
We don't think that we are soldiers in a battle. We actually get lulled into a full sense of security that we're civilians during peacetime. And what Paul is saying here is because of the work of the enemy, because of the sin and pain in the world, we're all subject to God's wrath. This passage says that we are born sinners and broken. The Greek word for phusi basically says we are part of a fallen race. And if there's any passage in Scripture that has caused huge contention, this is one of them. And the reason is, is because other translations say that you are children of wrath. And people have said, how can a loving God call us children of wrath? How can we be subject to that pain and hurt and struggle? How can we engage with the loving Father and his wrath? He says, you're a part of a fallen race and all of you are subject to my wrath. But God's wrath isn't irrational, it's rational. God's wrath isn't unloving, it's loving. God's wrath isn't unfair, it's fair. God's wrath isn't unjust, it's just. His wrath isn't angry and against sin. And his, his wrath is there because he's angry and against sin and suffering. He cannot face sin and suffering in this world. It's for our good, it's from a loving father. Paul is trying to do two things in this passage. He's trying to let us know how desperate and broken we are without God. How helpless we are without the loving Father. How much we need to be aware of the fact that God wants to judge us one day. But he's also very keen to tell us about incredible love and grace and hope in Jesus. He wants us to know that we are all subject to his wrath. He wants us to know that we are all easily succumbing to the evil and the schemes of the enemy. He wants us to know there's a lot of brokenness and pain in this world. But he also wants us to know that there's grace and there's love and there's goodness as we follow him. If we're honest as churches, we can too easily major on one or the other. We can say that it's all about the sin and the suffering. We're all broken and all desperate for a savior and we can feel condemned and judged. Or we can spend a lot of time saying how much God loves us and he's unconditional love, but actually we need a balance of both. How do we recognize that we are all helpless and broken without Jesus, but his grace and goodness and kindness and love is always sufficient? In this passage, we see a switch between we and he. We are children of the wrath. We are broken and damaged. And then he goes to he, I am loving. He is the one who cares for us. He's the one that's kind. He's the one that was raised with Jesus. He's the one that shows his incomparable graces. It switches from what we have and our brokenness and sin and suffering to what he is and how good he is. And it starts by saying his great love for us. It all is rooted in his incredible love for us. Not this superficial love that we often see on our TV sets. Not fickle love, not human love, but perfect love from God. The God who created love knows this perfect love. Not love that we see on Love Island. Is that really love? I don't know. You can decide. But this perfect, fantastic love that comes from God. His great love for each and every one of us. When there's pain and struggle going on, when there's hurt and heartache, his love is always sufficient. And from that love, we see his kindness to show us Jesus. He sent his son out of his kindness. He sent his son Jesus to have a relationship with me and you out of his kindness. And there we see we are called to be raised with Jesus. In verse 6, we are called to be raised with Jesus. It's perfect tense, saying that it's the now but not yet. He has been raised, and we will follow him if we trust in him. 
He's been raised to a father, but it's a step of faith saying, actually, I believe that one day I'm going to follow him. One day I'm going to be with her. He's showing us the way. He's saying, the father has allowed the Jesus to come to earth and then to be raised to the right hand of the father. And we too follow him if we trust him and believe in him. It's here that the crucial battle has been fought and won because he's conquered death and sin and suffering by coming to earth and then being raised to eternity with his father. Between D-Day, the Normandy landings, and victory in Europe, there was more casualties in that period. But the crucial battle had been fought and won. The same is true here. The crucial battle has been fought and won. Jesus has conquered everything. The sin and the suffering conquered evil on the cross. But we still live in a place of pain and suffering this side of eternity. We hold in faith that despite the battle we have in front of us, despite the pain and the struggle... The battle has been fought and won. We follow Jesus. This is the ultimate display of the incomparable riches of his grace that we see in this passage. That we should be raised to be with Christ Jesus. To eternal life. That everything is secure because he has been raised to be with the Father. And we too, if we believe in him, will one day be in eternity with him. My favorite theologian, Tamsin Radmore. She's not actually a student worker. But she was talking to me about this the other day, and she said, if we really grasp God's grace, if we really grasp that one day we're with Jesus for eternity, if we really grasp that he's done it all on the cross, that he's conquered everything, then it completely changes how we live now. Because we're less scared about what people think about us. We're less scared about sharing the good news. We're less scared about the problems of this life because we know that one day we're with Jesus for eternity. This incomparable grace incomparable but it's hard to describe hard to be compared this incomparable grace that is for every single one of us here this morning and this passage makes it really clear that it's not about our works it's all about his grace it's his grace that raised Jesus back to life it's his grace that forgives sins it's his grace that offers eternal life it's not about what we can do or want to do it's what about he's done on the cross his grace is always sufficient his grace is always to the extent of whatever we face and then we see in this passage that grace is both the way in and the way on we're created to do good works. We see that we're created to do good works in verse 10. We're called to do good works because we're created by God to serve his kingdom, to serve his purposes. And we have to be aware that in a city like Edinburgh where knowledge and academia and intelligence can be celebrated, if we're not careful, we can almost assume that our good works or our intelligence or our knowledge are what takes us to be a disciple of Jesus. But it's all about his grace. It's all about him. We're created to do good works, but grace is the way to Jesus, but grace is also the way on. It's his grace that we lean to. It's his grace that allows the world to be changed and transformed by his goodness and his power. We talked earlier about the maturity and the desire to have maturity, the desire to grow in maturity. And of course, that's absolutely right. We want to be people who grow as disciples, grow in maturity, grow in our relationship with God. But if that ever comes at the cost of childlike faith, of dependence in Jesus, relying on his grace, then we've missed something. Grace is both the way to Jesus and the way on. It's all about his grace. You might be here this morning thinking, how can I get through another week? Lean into his grace. His grace is always sufficient. How can I work with my boss who's just impossible? Press into his grace. Ask for more of his grace. 
How can I live for another week of unbearable pain? Turn to God and ask for his grace and his love. How can I share Jesus with my neighbor? Turn to Jesus and ask for his grace and his love and his goodness. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not what we've done, it's what he's done. It's not our power, it's his goodness working through us. We can't offer eternal life, but we know a God who can. We can't forgive sins, but we know a God who can. We can't heal, but we know a God who can. We're in a battle. And you don't need me to tell you that there's so much brokenness and pain, particularly on the pandemic. But the good thing for us personally is to be reassured that when we step into God, when we say actually that I want to depend on you throughout scripture, we see time and time again that our brokenness leads to blessing. When the brokenness and pain of struggle of life means we come to Jesus more, we depend on him more, we allow him to have more authority and blessing in our life and it leads to a deeper dependence on him and a deeper relationship with him and therefore an increased blessing. The more we depend on him, the more we lean into his grace, the more full we are. It's so counterculture. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's about depending on him, leaning on him. We're in a battle where we see, apparently, the biggest killer for men up to 50 is mental health, suicide. We see around us weariness and angst. We see around us poverty and brokenness. There's so much hurt and pain. I'm sure many of you see it on a daily basis. And as an aside, let's do what we can not to add to the works of the devil. Let's not what we can to help him and support him in that. Let's be kind to one another and show the goodness and love of Jesus. Let's remember we don't always know the, people, the story of other people and all they're going through. But we're in a battle and we see pain and struggle throughout but our call is to show the city Jesus. Our call is to extend the grace of Jesus. Yes, it's for us first, but it's to point people to Jesus. The city needs education. The city needs politicians. The city needs us to do good works. The city needs many activities from the church, but ultimately the city needs Jesus' grace. The city needs to meet with Jesus. The motto of our city is, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor in vain. It's absolutely pointless unless it's about depending on him, about his power working amongst others, about his power transforming lives. It's all about his grace for us, and it's all about his grace to those in our city. If you walk in a dark room, you don't pray against the darkness. You do what you can to turn on the light and get the light there. The same is true. There's darkness, there's brokenness, and what we need to do is to show people the light in Jesus. Let's be a grace people who recognize that it's all about his grace and his power transforming lives. Let's go to the different parts of our city. Let's serve and love others in our neighborhoods by showing them it's all about God's grace. It's all about his light in a world that can be so overwhelmed by darkness. Let's lean into his grace and press into his goodness and recognize that he's the one that can change lives. He's the one that changes our lives and he's the one that can change lives for eternity. I'm going to pray for us. Why don't, if you're able, if you stand. Yeah, Father, I pray simply that we would be reminded once again of your incredible grace, the hope we have in you, the fact that you are good, the fact that you lived, died, and rose again for me, for us. Jesus, just come. I pray that we'd once again know that incredible grace ourselves.
And for those of us who this morning just struggled to even get out of bed and get to be here, for those of us who are barely able to stand up, for those of us who are struggling with mental health, I pray right now you'd put your hand on their lives and just give them a real sense of peace and hope. Holy Spirit, come and comfort us. Come and be your peace, Lord. Jesus, just come. Have your way amongst us, we pray. Amen.